I'm saying, dudes, this is the extinction threshold for farming in, in our county at this mm. point. And actually, in terms of the results of that study, the farmers were talking about public perception as mm. really almost a deal breaker. And really? So, so m- more than weather and flooding and climate change <laughs> and all these things almost. that they felt was what was pushing them to the brink of extinction. Yeah. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Gigi Berardi is a scientist, a researcher, a professor, and a farmer, and a bunch of other things, including an author. And we're going to talk about her book in our conversation today here on the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is my continuing journey all over Washington State to get to know the real people behind our food and the people in this case, researching and learning about our farming community and what its future could look like, good or bad. It's interesting. This week, the conversation brings us right to Whatcom County, where I grew up, and talking with an academic, a researcher um, from the city, so to speak, from the the university in our county, uh, Western Washington University, who's actually worked with my dad up in rural North Whatcom County. He's a red raspberry grower on research projects. So it's bringing these worlds together, someone who I met through uh, my farmer dad, um, but she's got an incredible story to share coming from Hollywood and becoming a kind of a farming and sustainability guru. The things that she shares about the future and what she calls the extinction threshold for farming here in Washington and beyond is pretty troubling and it's an important important conversation to listen to. Again, her name is Gigi Berardi. She's a professor at Western Washington University, a farmer as well, and so many other things that we'll hear about in the conversation today. Our sponsors are the Dairy Farmers of Washington. You can find them online at wadairy.org. Check out their virtual farm tour there, and they have all kinds of stories and great information, not only about the delicious dairy products that come from Washington State, but also about the people that produce them. Of course, that's what we think is so important here on the podcast as well as the humans behind our food. It doesn't just, our food in Washington State that we produce here doesn't just come from a machine. It comes from real people and hardworking families. Also, Mana Insurance Group, speaking about families, that's what they're all about is helping protect you and your family's financial future, if you think about it. Because you think about insurance in terms of uh, dealing with things when they go wrong, well, that can really harm your financial future if you don't have a plan. And so that's what they do is have a plan in advance at uh, Mana Insurance Group to make sure you have things in place to protect yourself should something, you know, if and when something uh, unexpected happens. Manainsurancegroup.com. Check them out online. Also want to mention this week is the Great Washington Shakeout. Go to shakeout.org slash Washington. We are in earthquake country. It may not be Hollywood or California here, but we have lots of small earthquakes all the time. And of course, there's always that threat of, and we know, don't know when, but the big one is coming one day. Do you have a plan? Do you know what you're going to do? There's a big drill coming up Thursday, the 21st, at 10.21 a.m. The date is 10.21. The time is 10.21 a.m. Drop, cover, and then do you remember the third thing? Hold on. It used to just be drop and cover. Now it's hold on, too, because it's important. If everything's shaking around, to keep your cover 
uh, over your head and protect you from anything falling in the case of an earthquake. There's so many other things to be prepared for and do as well. And you can learn more about those via the Great Washington Shakeout, the drill happening this Thursday at 1021 a.m. and or online where you can get more details about the, the drill and the event at shakeout.org slash Washington, the Great Washington Shakeout. So you are passionate about food and farming and farming why what drives that how did that start for you um i grew up in an italian <laughs> household and so food was everything yeah and um and so uh, every sunday night we had huge dinners that had been cooked for the entire weekend and we had people and friends and maybe not so many friends but uh people we needed to connect to over for dinner the farming's super interesting because my my mother um, was from Oklahoma, and she literally was of the Grapes of Wrath era. Wow. Yeah. And in fact, I have first cousins, really, and who have just died recently, first cousins who came to California in uh, covered wagons. Yeah. So it was that close. So she hated farming. And so uh, we, I knew nothing about farming. We barely had a lemon tree uh, in our backyard in mm -hmm. Southern California. And for graduate school, I ended up at Cornell University mm. thinking that I wanted to study animals because mm. I love animals. Yeah. Like who doesn't? But anyway, and, uh, and I w started in wildlife biology and a resource management, but I wasn't so interested. What I was really interested in was every single other thing that was happening at that land-grant college. Mm. And I learned what a land-grant college was, and people thought I was, you know, strange, 22 years old. Everyone was like <laughs> 10 years older than me in natural resources and female, you know, yeah. back then. And I was so interested in farming. Cornell had a one-credit class that had been required, and it was the last year it was offered where you actually milked a cow. And it, yeah, and it and then it was discontinued. And so I was always interested in science. So I became very interested in the scientific applications in agriculture. I was so impressed to see the farm boys and the farm girls, a few of them, that were in classes and, you know, what kind of farms they had come from and their passion and wanting to keep on going in terms of the family business. And then I started to take animal nutrition mm. and, uh, and kind of senior level classes in that. And of course, dairy uh, nutrition was really yeah. the big thing there at Cornell and farm business management. Mm -hmm. And so now today I'm teaching business and sustainability classes, but I'm introducing farm and food into those classes at Western um, and rural sociology too. And I was interested in all of it. It was fascinating to me and it's how we get our food. So you were a city girl, essentially, at that point, coming into the world of farming via academia. I was born in Hollywood. Yes. Wow. And I was in the movies when I was little and TV. I mean, oh, really? I was just totally Hollywooded out. Yeah. What, what were you in? Um, well, 
I was an extra, okay? Yeah, I mean, yeah. sometimes I had larger parts, but um, Hello, Dolly oh, really? with Barbara Streisand. Yeah, and then there was a cult film called Wild in the Streets. When I was 11, I was in that. But mostly <laughs> it was TV, like the John Forsyth show. I was on Ben Casey, which was was one of the first kind of medical shows. I was a very, very little girl then. And, um, yeah, I was... So, yeah. coming from that world... And then entering the world of farming, what began to strike you about where food comes from? And, and when did you start to link that together, even like with your Italian heritage and the big meals and, you know, the focus on culinary art, you know, that's part of the culture that you come from? When did you start to feel like you're bringing that together? I mean, I guess I recognized that farming is hard and that I was so impressed that, uh, that people were trying to figure it out. And yeah, okay, you know, all my, I never had a female professor in any of my classes and yeah, they were older white men. Okay. And, um, but that, that's who I was studying. And, and then I must admit that some of them had, uh, kind of an international focus. Mm -hmm. And at that time in the world, it was the great so-called world food crisis in the 1970s and so-called energy crisis too. And so, uh, we were facing limited resources and, um, I was just really interested to see how they were figuring it out. And I must admit, I was a little rebellious. So I was in a very conservative (laughs) department of conservation, okay, where uh, they had easily identified all the world's problems, many of which related to so-called overpopulation. And I just knew it was more complicated than that. And I couldn't believe that they were comfortable in their silos and not interested in looking at agricultural economics Mm -hmm. and rural sociology. And where there was a lot of honesty and truth. And I didn't necessarily agree with it any, with everyone, but I sure knew that it was important information yeah. for me to have. So that's where you began to think deeply about sustainability. Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't a buzzword back then. Not only that, neither was organic farming. Yeah. So what happened was I became interested in another rebel who was, uh, his name was David Pimentel. He's died recently. And he, he was arch enemy, let's just say, of <laughs> in agriculture, kind of, but also in my world of conservation too. He, what he did was he pioneered the idea of a energy audit, let's say, uh, for agriculture or other farming systems or for anything. And he was an entomologist. And I hooked up with him because I just liked his approach as a vehicle for talking about um, resource issues. And so somehow I landed on the idea of doing something on organic farming. But organic farming was hardly a term then. And mm. whenever I talked to a faculty member, I always had to use the word, so, the term so-called organic farming. Mm. I could never say I was working on organic farming because they would say, oh, what's that? You know, contains carbon. So my first research was looking at conventional and organic uh, wheat production. And, you know, wheat production doesn't use many chemicals, really, um, compared to perhaps other crops. And so I did an energy and economic analysis on that. And it just opened up uh, for me questions about, um, about um, you know, fiscal solvency in organic farming yeah. and even in conventional farming. Um, 
And then my next project was a PhD, which was funded by the agriculture, then it was called the Agricultural Conservation um, and Stabilization Service and also Soil Conservation Service, where I studied soil. So I became interested not just in social dimensions, but the soil chemistry dimensions, too, and challenges farmers had. And in upstate New York, there's a tier on the, on the, uh, in the north, on the boundary with Canada. It's called the North Country, and it's, it's dairy farmers. Yeah. <laughs> so I first became super interested in dairy farming. It's dairy farmers on very poor, poor soils. There's hardly any soil. There's a lot of rock outcrop, uh, very poor drainage, if anything, the hardly any outlets. And what I tried to do was, um, what I studied was drainage, was subsurface and surface drainage to see how that might improve the economics and the energy efficiency of dairy farmers uh, in that particular area of New York with challenges. That sounds challenges that sounds very challenging oh it was super interesting because then I was like maybe 24 when I started my PhD from Hollywood and uh, <laughs> I'm walking into the um, you know walking into these farms and they're like who are you so yeah. I got a lot of experience being humble and just saying yeah. I am stupid you're going to have to educate me and mm. they opened up to me and I was able to do this study that humility I think is so important it mm. needs to come from both sides too <laughs> You know, from farmers, from academics, from co people coming from... I think so, there's so much that people can learn from each other if they drop the, you know, judgments and and listen. It's one planet. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's one county. It's, it's one watershed. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to fast forward, but I, I want to say that for the organic, for the master's thesis, I was able to find um, old order Mennonite farmers mm. for my sample. And I have to tell you, it was impossible to find old order Amish farmers who were organic. There, I felt like there wasn't a single, despite public appearances, public yeah. perceptions, sorry, yeah. not appearances, but despite public percep perception. <laughs> they weren't farming organically, and uh, I found one old order Mennonite family, and they took me into their home. So I was able, I went, anyway, I was able to put on like a little uniform yeah. and live with them for a while. But let me tell you that the other old order Mennonite farmers in their community thought they were weird, because we mm -hmm. went over to their houses. And so, uh, so anyway, so that was a real eye-opener to me. And uh, now that family, the mother and father, has 78 grandchildren. Wow. And great-grandchildren, yeah. So, um, but anyway, I think the humility piece is important. Yeah. And so a few years ago, we did... Um, um, we got some money from the USDA to study small and mid-sized... Um, farming for prosperity it was a prosperity mm. grant so how can small scale and mid-scale farms which is a pretty gracious definition a range yeah. of what constitutes small and yeah. and mid-sized uh, become more prosperous and we we parlay that into a resilient study. And I just really didn't want to use the word sustainability. Mm -hmm. And the, what I like to say is, I know this is a little dramatic, but, you know, it'd be easier for me to, to lay down in the middle of I-5 than to get a farmer to, in, in the county to come to a sustainability study that Western is putting together. <laughs> There's like six parts of that sense that doesn't fit with what yeah. they're interested in. 
the way it's pitched. And, um, and so we did the resilience study and your father was part of that. And, uh, and, um, it was in, uh, Snohomish and San Juan and Whatcom County. And, um, and what we found is in writing, uh, disaster scenarios. So we had four disaster scenarios. One was rapid urbanization, which is a big Mm -hmm. threat to farming. Certainly. In many ways. And then we had energy spikes, a a spike in energy prices. We had climate change, general climate change, Mm -hmm. and uh, and flooding, seasonal flooding. And the point is with those disaster scenarios, well, first of all, the main point is it was hard to write and pitch a disaster scenario to a farmer that was really a disaster scenario because farmers really learn how to maneuver around yeah. that and how to negotiate these disasters, which are just commonplace. It's not something that's made up at Western when a yeah. couple of people write yeah. a scenario. Okay, so it it's was true. hard to convince people it was serious. Uh, but, uh, but we did. So that means that we had to go farther and farther out in terms of the climate change scenario. The seasonal floods had to be like a pineapple express, which we did have actually mm-hmm. while we were writing it. So that was one thing. The second thing is that, and this is why I like the idea of resilience, which I talk about in the book, is that it's something we can all get our heads around, whether we're small, whether we're, and I know small and mid-sized doesn't really mean very much. I, I realize that, but mm-hmm. whether we're, you know, we have the family cow or, uh, you know, five acres of permaculture or we've got, you know, 90 head of cattle we're missing and we're milking or, you know, whatever, whatever that means or larger, much larger. And we did have, we did have farmers in the sample who had 2000 cows that they were milking. Okay. Which was pushing the idea of mid, but anyway, um, we're all affected by seasonal rains. We're all affected by that flooding. And so we all should be, and the farmers were interested in asking questions about, well, what's happening in the upper reaches of the watershed and who's winning and who's losing with that. And then what does it mean for us? You know, and then your dad starts asking questions, you know, about, uh, you know, discussions that are being had in the county about, you know, water banking, basically. Yeah. And so, okay, so it's all connected. It's, it's, it's all good. So, so that was, that was really interesting. And, um, and I think humility was, was a part of that. Yeah. And what we did was we put together a graphic and, and I, I pitched the idea of an extinction threshold that they talk about all the time in wildlife biology. I'm saying, dudes, this is the extinction threshold for farming in, in our county at this mm. point. And actually, in terms of the results of that study, the farmers were talking about public perception as mm. really almost a deal breaker. And really? So, so more, more than weather and flooding and climate change <laughs> right. and all these things almost. that they felt was what was pushing them to the brink of extinction. Yeah, um, uh, you know, almost. Because that's also feeding into these kind of inane regulations that the... Uh, that people, I hate saying the farmers, it sounds like, I don't know, mm-hmm. um, that people <laughs> yeah. in this study were coming up with like, you know, one inspector comes in one day and the hinges have to be here and the next inspector comes in and they need to be here. Yeah. But public per- perception is also a part of that in terms yeah. of, you know, who we're voting into office yep. and why. Yep. And 
Yeah. So, um, so we did that. And then I thought, how stupid to use this money for like a report that, these, that, that people in the study aren't going to read. So we made a film. Mm. And so we made a film called Our Farms Are at Risk. And it was a two and a half minute film. And then we made a 30 second version. And actually, I think in that film, um, Dory Belisle <laughs> was mm-hmm. in it, and, uh, and Larry yeah. Stapp, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and Larry Stapp and Troy Troy Lenson and uh, Debbie Vanderveen, mm-hmm. and uh, and we made a thirty second version and we put it on Seattle TV. And I'm like, you know, people don't care about farming. Let's just do this. Our farms are at risk. Thirty second, and it's like, you know, Larry said, you want to know what the problem is? The real problem is people. People are our problem. And you'd think, like, I don't know if Larry would say that, but but he meant it, you know. And and even though he's a very people person and he's very loyal to his constituency, and but that's just it. And then the film, the two and a half minute version, won an Addy Award, which is the American Marketing Association. Association. Like an agriculture film has won yeah. an award in marketing, but we were marketing kind of like farmer's plight yeah. and yeah. what we need to do. So uh, well, what other, other than the award, what other feedback did you get from like the general public? What do people f- say about it? They were, well, you know, we had music that we, that was, had to be re, had to be recomposed for the 30 second version. It mm-hmm. was, it was daunting. I think at the end what we say is our farms are at risk. There's a slide and then the farmresilience.org project for more information. I think people were saddened. People were surprised. I mean, I showed it in student in classes with my students. I showed it at Huxley College. I showed it um, whenever I was giving a talk. And, uh, and, I think in that two and a half minutes and 30 seconds, people mm-hmm. were shocked at the challenges farmers have. I guess, you know, I keep hearing this more and more. I, I see more than I ever have in my whole life that, that that this extinction threshold is real and it's not nearly as far away as even the yeah. farming community sometimes thinks because they have to be optimists, right? It's always, well, next year. Well, you know, when does it become, when do you get to the point when there's no next year? And... Then I also think, you know, when I talk with people outside of the farming community, it's like, oh, you know, is it really, you know, that bad? And you're saying, based on this, that it is. Like, how close is that extinction threshold? Close. Hmm. I, I, and so then what do we do with that? Bummer. I mean, I, I, then I, I'm interested in what comes next. And so, I mean, not that you're not, I'm not saying that, but like, this is what comes next. (laughs) Why do we need to keep farmers farming. And I say open space. Mm. I mean, there's other reasons, but I'm just trying to get to yes. I'm just trying to find common ground with critics or with, Mm -hmm. I don't know, people who aren't thinking thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. Open space. We need that open space. And the other thing that comes from that is infrastructure, you know, especially for our dairy county, you know. And, uh, And once that infrastructure is lost, then it's... It's really difficult to, to, to get it back in terms yeah. of dairy farming. And uh, so open space and all the ecological services that are associated with open space mm-hmm. is invaluable. And, and, and for no other reason that we've got to, we've got to keep that going. Um, and so that, <laughs> that relates to zoning and that relates to, um, to support at different levels. Um, 
I, I won't use the word subsidy because I know that gets overused yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, and misused, but uh, especially now with the current farm bill. But um, I, uh, I I think that uh, it is real, and if you don't think it real, it's real. What it means is that we're getting our food from somewhere else, and then these are other people's problems in other countries. One of the classes I teach, I'm able to teach a global learning program because I do this eco-gastronomy kind of farming program in Switzerland and Italy, but also in Mexico, which is challenging. And we go to Mexico, and we can see basically that there's no free lunch, which is a very... um, special and important concept in environmental <laughs> science there's no free lunch and so yeah. and so we're getting our winter broccoli from from uh from these valleys in uh the central part of mexico guanajuato state and you know i'm able to take students to the villages and and uh through no fault of anyone's own but some kind of plan of some sort. I mean, the bedrock there is loaded with fluoride and arsenic. Mm. And so you start to deplete the water table and you're going to find a heavier concentration of those toxic metals, you know, in, uh, in water. And it's, it's, it's harming children. And so, and so, and that's what agriculture there, broccoli agriculture, you know, gets us. And I, I honestly, I feel, uh, more confident and competent, Talking with farmers in my county, in Whatcom County, and taking students on field trips in yeah. my county. And if there's some something that's going on in terms of practices that they've got questions about, they can ask right here. I'd love to have the broccoli grown, uh, grown in Whatcom County. And I bet there's people who would love to grow it yeah. on some kind of scale. But the reality is, you know, broccoli is not a high dollar, high value <laughs> cash crop. You know, and, and so many people love their veggies. Well, most veggies, I mean, you go to the store. They aren't that expensive. And it's just pennies on the dollar that make it back to the farmer. So it's really tough to make it. And I've heard this from multiple people now, even here on the podcast and outside. So then it's like, why would you do that here? Because you would go broke right. really fast. <laughs> right. And because of that, because, and, so the, and so you've just kind of answered your own question yeah. uh, in, in some respects. So, be, okay, given that... We look at dairy farming in the county. There's a problem with dairy farming. I mean, there is, this is a beautiful climate for for dairy farms. There, we used to have a lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about the Hundreds extinction. Hundreds more. Yeah. yeah, the extinction threshold. And so we're looking at a kind of farming that we should support with the dairy farming where it is what I call in the book whole, meaning integrated, meaning it's a mixed livestock crop. For in most for most mm-hmm. situations where that manure is kind of recycled, if you will, yeah. and I know I'm not supposed to use the word waste, Trey Linson says, so I yeah. won't. But uh, where because a farmer views it as nutrients, as something with value. Abs- absolutely. So okay, so that's that's going to be the what we're growing here. It's not going to be broccoli, but the broccoli, broccoli. But then we've got Skagit, you know, County. Yeah. So why is you know they producing forty to seventy percent of the world seed of crops when I don't know maybe that could be broccoli well you have to follow the money right you know obviously the the value isn't there 
But it's complicated. I mean, yeah. these are the kinds of questions you have to ask. Well, and they have the infrastructure still somewhat, yeah. even though it's gone away quite a bit. But in Skagit County, there's still some infrastructure. You go back to talking yeah. about what's in the community, and once you lose it, you can't get it back. That's the story here in Whatcom County, because yeah. I remember when I was a kid, my dad grew peas, and there were all <laughs> yeah. kinds of other vegetables and yeah. stuff, because we had the facilities to take them and, you know, get them into freezers or bags or cans or whatever, you know, the canneries. Well, those are gone. Yeah. How do you ever bring them back? Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, when I wrote Food Wise, originally I was, my main goal was to address what I call fierce food beliefs. Hmm. So it was the fierce food beliefs about two different worlds. One world was farming, and I call that our shared world of food. I call farming our shared world of food. And then what we eat, our choices in terms of what we actually put into our bodies, and I call that our personal world of food mm-hmm. and they surely affect each other yeah that is true in many in many ways but that's how i divided it up because i my task was to talk about all farming all things yeah all people all foods so i'm thinking even uh, just looking at your book i'm thinking about being in your position as you're planning this what a daunting i mean it's such a tip of the iceberg you could just keep digging deeper and deeper into all these issues I know. You know, I don't think the word permaculture appears in there once, and I teach permaculture. I mean, it just wasn't part of the story. (laughs) And so I just had to, but it is. Don't get me wrong. Those of you in permaculture out there, yeah. But but the story I'm trying to tell in terms of like weaving together all of these different strands and people not being threatened in terms of their food choices by trying to understand what I call wise, food wise. And so the W is for a whole, and that means kind of integrated forms. Honestly, that is... Uh, sneaky speak for uh, for dairy farms, for yeah. for mixed crop uh, and livestock farms, and um, my my students, and I, I mean I can relate, I can understand that in large part, perhaps because of exposure or lack of it, are 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 skeptical of um, of of complicated operations like this. So this is one right. reason why it's important to, to, to use it as a vehicle for discussion in my classes. Yeah. But anyway, that's what I mean by whole. But like broccoli from Mexico? No, I don't know anything about that. But it is, but it is affordable. Yeah. And it's you know, even yeah. organic broccoli from, you know, it. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, but anyway, okay, whole. And then I is for informed. Just be informed. Just get as much information as you can and try and address confirmation bias, which is you only get information and accept information and relay information on things about things that you already believe in that kind of reinforce what you believe in. That gets us nowhere. Echo chamber. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then S um, is sustainable, but that was also that uh, uh, sustain. That means also sustainable us, like our personal budgets. We have to recognize yeah. that. One of the things I did was like put together a dinner from Seven Eleven. Uh, you know, so sustainable uh, budget, sustainable planet, and I I prefer the word resilience, but it doesn't fit with wise. Yeah. And uh, and then E for experience, and I'm like my. Gosh, that's the most important thing. Mm. That is getting out there and doing something for yourself. So in one of the classes I teach, there's 130 students. And I know it's difficult with COVID, but I put it all remote so it's possible. They have to cook. 
So there's assignments where they have to cook. Usually we've got 40 students cooking for 120 students. And we do that like four or five times during the quarter. And it doesn't have to be W-I-S. It doesn't have to be all of that or what we call floss. Fresh, local, organic, sustainable, seasonal. It doesn't have to be all five of those. It can be just like one of those, fresh, you know, and and just like experience what that is. Experience the expense of it. Experience the complication of cooking it. So they they cook for themselves. They forage for themselves. And uh, and that's experience. Experience is, uh, well, information is like secondhand experience. It's It's not as good, but the experience is really what, what makes us, what, what gives us practical wisdom. So yeah. that is the ability to know what to do, what to do, and when to do it. And that's important for hospitals making difficult decisions, for decisions, criminal systems, in terms of young offenders, uh, teachers doing the right thing when a student can't show up, and our f- choices about food. So before I forget, the name of the book is Food Wise by you. Where can people find it if they want to read this and, and <laughs> delve in themselves? Well, you know, it was I was lucky to have a very nice publisher, North Atlantic Books, and uh, and uh, Penguin Random House distributes it. So it's on. If you just look up Food Wise, one word, not two words. Food Wise. Um, and my name, Gigi, maybe even just the first name, G-I-G-I. It's on like 50 or 60 websites around awesome. the world. You'll be able to find it. I was going to say Michael Pollan in the end actually endorsed the book. Maybe I shouldn't wow. say that. Um, but And he said, Gigi, I can't find it. This is ridiculous. I'm like, Michael, it's one word. But <laughs> that brings up the interesting question of who endorsed this book. Yeah. And many different people, farmers, Big farmers endorse this book. Um, vegans endorse this book. Fierce meat eaters endorse mm. this book. And I love that. Um, I think that there's, uh, because I, I'm just saying, just consider this acronym, you know? Yeah. And and honestly, um, in the second part of the book, I talk about science. In a way, it's actually... Um, an ode to science saying that there's something here, you know, it's like way back at Cornell. I was fascinated by the science. So for example, I take on, um, I take on fats and I said, look, if you look at the theoretical work of this MIT researcher, you'll see that there's some very interesting research on what saturated fat does in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And yeah, not the processed, um, uh, you know, polyunsaturated fats, but actually animal fats, okay, and Mm -hmm. coconut and palm oil, but uh, it's worth looking at. Or for Mm -hmm. sugar, look, nah, it's not just like high fructose corn syrup in those corn farmers or whatever. It's like fructose. It's like, you know, let's look at what that, what sugar does. And, you know, Mm -hmm. why is it that giving your kid a can of soda is like a can of beer? According Uh, to this one epidemiologist, (laughs) maybe you don't agree. So, I mean, but it's worth looking at the research or why artisan food is so difficult to do sensory taste profiles on because it's not consistent and we value consistency. So right. most of the research in sensory taste science is on, you know, basically commodities, I guess, yeah. or kind of industrial food, which is interesting. It's neither good nor bad. It's just, it's just interesting. So you're an author 
of the book Food Wise. You're also a professor mm. and researcher. How would you describe yourself? What What are all the the titles and hats that you wear? Like on my medical forms, I yeah. say prof- I say I say professor writer. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but I also uh, have been so privileged. I've been like milking dairy cows, like hand milking for maybe ten years. But six years ago, we got our own sheep, mm. and so I I hand milk our sheep. We'll have four ewes. Um, next season and make cheese and then I teach the art and science of cheese with an ecotoxicologist at Western and so it's a kind of a hands-on class but there's a lot of science there again on the art and science of cheese if we want to look at uh, nutrient management from cheese producing plants we'll talk to uh, Lindsay and Jeff Slevin at you know Twin Sisters you mm-hmm. know Creamery which is fascinating so um, there's that I'm an EMT Oh, so wow. I became an EMT last year. I went through the training. Congrats. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah, what a those... time in the world to become an EMT, but yeah. it's needed. Yeah. In fact, I, if COVID had just started when I was doing my practicals at St. Joe's uh, and, uh, and uh, in the San Juan Islands. And uh, yeah, I'm an EMT. And so I'm a first responder. And um, yeah, I'm a mom. And uh, <laughs> I have... Uh, author... You know, researcher, professor, scientist, uh, farmer, EMT. Yeah. How do you have time to do all of this? I have 25-year-old twins. I'm writing a novel, and (laughs) I threw the first 100,000 words away because it was a Wikipedia article and not very Mm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that was a hard experiment, Uh, and I've got about 40,000 words uh, now. I've heard that it's harder to write a novel than it is nonfiction. Oh, my gosh. It is for me. I mean, it's counterintuitive because you think, well, you're just making it up so you can take it wherever you want. Mm. But to be true to reality and resonate. Yeah, and really dive into a character. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, I'm learning German and, uh, two years ago I had, uh, I had a sabbatical in Switzerland, in Dornach, Switzerland at the Gertianum and the Gertianum is the kind of seat of biodynamic farming and Waldorf mm. education. And I was just curious. I'm a curious person, curiosity seeking person. Yeah. And so, uh, and so I was there and muddled through in German and I'm, uh, doing better by taking, taking elementary German classes now, <laughs> but it does take up a lot of time. I kicked myself so hard for not paying more attention when I was younger in language learning. Yeah. Other second, third, whatever other languages, because the younger you are, the easier it is to learn. They tell me. Oh, I know. I know. (sighs) Yeah. Well, I speak Italian and I can get by in a couple other languages, but it's, it's, it's embarrassing. So you teach at Huxley College of the Environment at Western Washington University which, honestly, as someone who grew up in the farming community here in Whatcom County, I grew up in the North County, agricultural, rural, conservative, Bellingham's to the south, western, Huxley. That's known as, like, the diametric, you know, opposite. Right? Yeah. Uh, but-, but but what's your experience there? And you talked about even, like, you know, talking about dairy or issues around dairy farming being a conversation starter. What are those conversations? What is being talked about in the in the college? For starters, uh, there uh, uh, many students um, 
are looking at uh, you know vegetarian diets, vegetarian food preferences. They are concerned about um, about dairy, uh, mm-hmm. um, th- which is one reason why in the book I talk about saturated fats because yeah. one of the beliefs, though, with all that is that we're all different and it's mm. very it's super not popular for me to say this so i say it with humility but and, and offer maybe we're really not that different mm. and that's that's risky for me because it's not a popular thing to say and then from that i say let's look at what nutrients constitute our diet yeah. and let's look at the fat load in our diet and fiber load in our diet it is and show how it's all related and so and so they've got um ideas i mean i've got ideas too about what their food uh, preferences are and there's there's in general a skepticism about animal agriculture and what uh, even drives that what's informing that and and i'm not saying it's not it's never a valid concern because I think especially in the university context, that's where you're supposed to be challenging those kinds of things and digging deep. What is the truth and questioning? But when, when students come in with those questions, you know, where does that come from? Do they have experience with any farming? And let me give you another example, which is, so we, I take students to a farm happens to be in the San Juan islands on Lopez Island called SNS Homestead. Mm. And that farmer is deeply he is deeply religious, but he's mm. also deeply spiritual too. Yeah. And he has published some papers on the sacredness of farming. Mm. And people I'll, again I'll, st- I'll stop like farmers and students I'll just say people and <laughs> yeah. people have a, a, a hard time even reading the paper and kind of appreciating another person's view on where they're seeing the spiritual mm. in their farming so and it's and I, I and you ask where's that come from and I'm like yeah because like their parents are only like 45 or 50 or whatever they're not like 75 or 80 and yeah. many of those parents are not so-called religious I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. So I've not really been able to wrap my head around that, that the, this fear of d- d- religion, I, I, mm-hmm. I kind of get that, but the fear of the spirituality component in that yeah. is very interesting to me. So the natural predilection predilection to um, to being skeptical of, of animal agriculture um, I think it's all wrapped up in perception of fats, mm. for example. I do. In nutrition? Of, uh, nutrition health? in terms of their personal choices. What about sustainability and the environment and those kinds of things? They're not seeing manure as a nutrient. Mm. And so they're seeing it uh, as 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 a waste. And mm. And I just think we have a very proud and interesting history of 25 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean important, let me just say important history where, yeah, there was a wake up call in the county and, you know, things changed in terms of nutrient management all across the state and the paperwork that was needed Mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to get to nutrient management. And so there have been some wake up calls, but everyone's working to keep those nutrients where they need to be. And 
I don't know. It's just it's why it's my my job. It's why my job is always fresh, even though I've been doing this for decades. Because people are coming to it fresh, and we just have to see that farmers are are stewards. There are. Let me just say that there are some issues that are. I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on facilitating discussions among skeptics or among those with fierce food beliefs. I don't in terms of labor. And Mm. I know you and I have talked about this a teeny bit once Mm. or twice. I'm still working on this. And even in the book, in FoodWise, I talk about... um, Kind of the history of uh, of part time labor, kind of like a potted a potted version of that, and kind of related to legislation, let's yeah. say, mm-hmm. um, without particular uh, bringing up particular cases. But it's not enough, and I couldn't get. I'll be honest, I couldn't get people in labor to endorse the book. And I said, "But look, I'm asking these questions. I'm trying to present it, but it wasn't right. enough. I didn't go far enough." Mm. And I, in the county, I, so I'm still, uh, I'm convinced that I can be part of the discussion. And, yeah. uh, and I know that some of these issues are quite polarized and I understand why on, yeah. on both sides. And well, um, it's about people's lives it, and about human dignity and decency, right? Yeah. And I just think without jumping into that, since I don't really have a good way to kind of frame <laughs> yeah. some of the discussion, I think I think starting with with the commitment to nutrient recycling, you know, yeah. starting with other aspect, aspects of farm practices is important. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's even starting, uh, maybe it's even... Uh, so before going on to labor practices, maybe a first thing is looking at, for example, water management in the county, which is, which is um, uh, a good discussion uh, to have, and uh, and what the and what people are doing in terms of getting information, let's say, on uh, water availability, water cycling, and water management, and talking to each other, and the tribes, you know, the so many sovereign nations that we share this land with. And yeah. I say that because I taught at Northwest Indian College. And I yeah. think when I was teaching, there were 26 tribal nations represented. Yeah. You know, I think, I do. I think farmers are respectful and there are some unanswered questions and there's sides there. But Well, and talk about a, a culture and a history, a legacy of food, too, between you know, <laughs> tribal families and, you know, Food from the land and from the sea. I mean, yeah, it's it's a huge, rich tradition there as well. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me that there are ways to talk and meet and not that that there's agreements very much. I mean, always, Mm -hmm. but like uh, it's a work in progress. It's a good dynamic work in progress. And and as long as we recognize, um, you know, uh, the, the tribal nations as sovereign nations and what their rights are. I mean, yeah. you know, and I think farmers are starting with that as a basic principle. Yeah. We can have discussions. The labor, labor practices is, I'm, I'm working on that with yeah. my students I'm talking about. Well, everything really. Yeah, Life yeah. is a work in progress. It but, is a work but, in progress. But thank you for sharing about your book and about your background. It's it's a really cool story where you've come from being, you know, growing up in Hollywood to here in Northwest Washington state, all about food and sustainability and the environment that we steward around us. I, I really appreciate your work. 
Thank you so much. And I'll just say one thing that I'm actually working with Mother Noella Marcellino, who's now the Mother Prioress at Our Lady of the Rock on, on Shaw Island. And she is the cheese nun. She hates to be called the cheese nun. <laughs> but she did her, she did, she's just a wonderful kind of life lesson and partner yeah. for me. And I think her story is quite interesting that she was charged at her abbey, Regina Laudas, in um, Bethlehem. Connecticut mm. to kind of get the cheese making going and they used a lot of wood uh, in mm. their che- wood vats and wood paddles and yeah. some of that came from France and all of a sudden she was in the middle of a controversy about uh, the microbiology mm. of the of the cheese uh, of the of the milk and of the cheese paste and the relationship to wood but she has been parlayed into this heroine in fact she just addressed slow food cheese and bra. She addressed the annual, the biannual conference on cheese. And they were trying to get her to say that, you know, you know, wood is awesome and raw is the best and fresh. And she was like, "Mm -mm." and she, and she said, I think we, you know, we make choices in terms of producing fresh milk cheeses, but you have to be careful in these, particularly with these kinds of cheeses. And we are using wood, but you have to be careful in these dimensions. And I think it's always, it's always very, very complicated. That's what we find every time. There's no all or nothing answer almost ever. Oh my gosh. That is the bottom line. And here in the United States. Okay. I know this is a gross generalization, but like. People want those binary answers. With my people. Yes or no. Yeah. And it's it's never that simple. But it's not exactly right. It's not meat, no meat. Yeah. It's not water, no water. Yeah. It's not. It just isn't. Oftentimes, it's not organic or not organic. What about transitional? What about transitional? What about a little bit of meat? What about a you know exactly? And I I just I just have to stick with that. That's what I just firmly believe in. That that is how we remain humble and respect each other. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much with us. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 